0: to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine is chatting with Katie Cantrell and Alana Braverman. Katie's been on the podcast before. And so this is something of a catch-up interview, but it's a, such a wonderful topic. I can't wait to catch up with them. And they're going to be telling us about this amazing work being done by Greener by Default. Its goal is to change what people choose when they go into cafeterias and maybe in some other venues as well without taking away their ability to choose, like people will still be able, they can't say, oh, you know, these crazy vegans are coming in and they're, they're stopping me from eating my dead cows. No, everybody will still have choices, but they have come up with ways to help people make better choices. I just really love this.
1: Yeah, they are incredible humans doing incredible work. And I know this will this will resonate with so many of you by the way, speaking of resonating with you, I want to tell you that I was just driving to get home and oh, I can't
0: believe you're gonna like tell this story. I'm All just right. it's, go it's, it's go ahead. It's bothering
1: me and this is what I do when things bother me. I put them <laughs> on to other people so that they are then bothered. Isn't that the point of a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I was driving home and I was at a stop sign or stoplight and there were a bunch of cars stopped and the car in front of me was a truck that was for a flooring company. And he opened his window and threw out a wrapper. And I thought, well, this is where I went. I was like, oh, he dropped something. Maybe I should tell him. And then he threw another wrapper out and a third, he littered. And I was like, absolutely gobsmacked, even though I have very little hope in humanity left, I still was shocked. And I was like, looking around like, ah, 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 like trying to get someone else's attention so we could be exasperated together, but everyone was just not paying attention. And I called the number on the back of the truck to complain, but there was no number. It was like out of service. Yeah, it's
0: like one of those one eight hundred. Fuck you.
1: Yeah, basically, and I just, I'm, I just needed to tell everyone so that I could share my horror with you and get it off my chest.
0: Littering makes me insane. What I've done in those situations, which is totally for my own benefit, it's not going to make any difference. I just honk. Like I just immediately honk my horn. Th- they're not going to connect it, but I feel better about it. I mean, assuming one is in a place where it would be reasonably safe to do that. But, you know, littering and, and, and eating animals are definitely connected. That's what we like, that talk that we've done in the past about why being vegan, actually, even though it's hard to make the argument that you ac- have an actual effect on the number of animals killed, you can make that argument, but you know, it's a, it's a tough one. Like, it, it's like littering, like, like, yeah, if you litter it's not going to change the world but is that does that mean that everybody should just litter because obviously individual actions are connected to group actions i mean that's just a fact like like and and littering is the perfect one what if we all did what if everybody did that the world would be a total mess I feel like going out and, and finding him and getting him arrested. I guess that's not going to happen. Are you You're sure? sure? Well, we were. Are you, and,
1: and It was a man. Yes, uh, right. it was a man. Sure? All right.
0: I don't want to misgender anybody.
1: No, it was. It was. So there was there was one other thing that I wanted to mention since you mentioned a veganism. It's funny. I had, I planned a dinner with someone who I work with, not here, not at our hen house, but at at my, you know, at the station and this person wasn't vegan and we had planned to go to, this was my choice originally, a sushi place near us that has a vegan sushi menu and really good food and, and great drinks. And I was so excited at the last minute, more was joining us. And suddenly I realized the person we're eating with isn't vegan. And I like had this panic attack because I didn't want to sit there and eat and watch her eat individuals. But I also didn't, it's funny because once more was in the mix, I was looking at it from her perspective. And I was like, I don't want to subject her to a dinner with someone who's eating individuals. So she said, Tell your colleague, oh, I just had sushi. I changed the reservation. So I changed the reservation to Redfern, the vegan restaurant here. Then I text my colleague who I was picking up to drive her there. So it didn't matter that she, you know, didn't yet know. But it would have been polite for me to ask ahead of time. But I didn't. I just sometimes politeness
0: has to go the way of the. I don't. I don't know where I'm going with that analogy. But you know, sometimes you have to give up on politeness if it means saving saving animals or at least saving yourself the grief of watching somebody eat animals.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I I texted her. I said, by the way, I hope you don't mind. I changed to Red Fern. We'll still pick you up at blah, blah, blah time.
0: I just want to add eating at Red Fern, regardless of your eating preferences, is definitely not a punishment. It's like an amazing vegan restaurant.
1: Well, uh, vegan or not, it's one of the most popular restaurants in Rochester.
0: Yeah, you can never get a table there. I'm surprised you did.
1: I was too. It was just because it was a weird night of the week. But anyway, so she was like, yeah, no problem. So we're at the restaurant, and somehow the sushi thing comes up, and she's like, yeah, what happened? You know, she wasn't bothered.
0: Yeah, she was just curious. Yeah. yeah. And
1: and then so Moore had told me to say, Oh, I just had sushi, but I decided to tell her the truth because oh, I look li- for you. I like good her. I want to be friends with her. Yeah, and good for I, you. I didn't feel like just, you know, saying a thing that would feel safe. So I was like, to be fully honest, I, I, I'm i not comfortable with people eating individuals in front of me. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I, I'm dictating what you eat, but I, I realized I wanted to like, forge a friendship with you. And, the, and that felt That, that felt was such better. a nice way to put it. So then she went Does into... Does she now hate you? Well, she went into her... Well, I used to be vegan. I tried oh, it. I used to be vegan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so that was... And so Moore and I like kind of exchanged a glance. Yeah, but you
0: know, they need to do that. I, they do, yeah. It's one of their defense mechanisms.
1: I will say I was very glad... I was glad she didn't order... I'll say the hummus. It's not actually hummus, but it's like the, the hummus choice. Like it's called the Buddha Bowl, and it's just basically like
0: yeah, no, it's always so wearing when you bring meat eaters to vegan restaurants, and they order the thing that they're kind of familiar with. They would never order anything that looks sort of like something special, (laughs) right? Like a, a meat analog or you know cheese analog. They they just stick to salad. Yeah.
1: She ordered the adventurous thing. She ordered the the compost plate, which is the vegan take on the garbage plate, which is like a Rochester thing.
0: Unfortunately, Rochester's main culinary achievement is something called the garbage plate, which I I don't, I, I think, you know, we have to start a cause to change that. Like, we can we come up with something else, but it is delicious. It's all these like different foods, uh, all delicious foods, mac and cheese, and and yeah. and and various uh, meats and or meat analogs, and and mm-hmm. uh, I forget what else, some kind of potato thing. I you know it, it's obviously yummy.
1: It's really good, and then she also got like a smoothie and two desserts because she couldn't decide. I want to eat with her. I felt like I needed to treat her. Because I felt like I was forcing her to eat vegan food, which is like definitely I have to call a therapist about that inclination. But in any case, I think she had a really nice evening. I felt like it was advocacy and probably me treating everyone was my way of also being like an apologist, which is something I'm working on. That's all right.
0: You know, we can have our own styles. They don't all have to be like assertive. I thought that was a very gracious way to handle it.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad you thought that. And, and I'm very, very really proud enjoyed... of you for
0: actually bringing it up and not just saying, oh, I, I decided I hate sushi.
1: Yeah, well, honestly, the that's something I've been working on. So many of us, especially those of us who were raised as little girls, ha- have issues with people pleasing. It, I yeah, feel like I, I have really done a lot of growth in my life. And then there's that thing that uh, every day I actively work on it. and, And that to me, the people pleasing would have either been to go or to lie. And so I did it.
0: I know that we get like a lot of shit for people pleasing, but like, think about it. Like, is there something wrong with please being pleasing? No, I, I, it's fine. Just make sure you don't lose yourself in the process. I mean, I think that's what people mean when they criticize people pleasing, but when you just look at the words, there's nothing, you don't have to be like unpleasant being pleasant is fine as long as Mm -hmm. you're also yourself and you stick to your guns and that's exactly what you did. I'm so proud of you. You had a dinner with a person and didn't get into a fight and it's a major achievement.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate that uh, sentiment.
0: I was being a tiny bit sarcastic.
1: Oh, well, thanks
0: anyway. No, it it is an achievement. We need to be proud of every, all of our small moments. Right. All of the little things.
1: So I'm proud of you because you dropped another episode of the Animal Law Podcast. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, no, I really wanted to talk about this one because I think that everybody should listen to it. I do not say that about every episode of the Animal Law Podcast. I think a lot of them are really for lawyers. I mean, I I really appreciate that non-lawyers listen to them, but you know, they do get into like technical stuff, which I'm sure if you're not, you know, if you don't practice law it can be tedious. But this one, I really hope people do listen to, even though it is very depressing. Sorry. But, you know, that's what we do. I mean, there is legal work involved, but it, it, it's it's not that technical. And it's the topic. It's the, And the topic is something we all need to know about. I've been wanting to do an episode on it for a while because I don't know enough about it. Uh, and it's biogas. You know, we've all seen the, well, maybe we have it all, but the pictures of the cows with the balloons over their head and they're trying to catch the farts and, and, and whatever. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the gas that comes off of the lagoons that are found on pig and dairy farms mostly. And uh, the lagoons, of course, are, you know, huge pools of shit and urine. Uh, and they're collecting the gas and this has become... A big business, largely because our government is is subsidizing it. I mean, that's you. Our taxpayers are subsidizing it up the wazoo. Unbelievable. This is huge. I mean, there are dairy farms that are making more money off of their gas than making off of the cows. So if you're using natural gas, it's a fossil fuel generally anyway, but now in addition to being a fossil fuel, it's not vegan. I mean, it's coming off of cows and pigs anyway i, I won't go on and on because i'll give away the whole episode just listen to it my guest was christine ball Blakely of the animal league defense fund aldf is actually part of a coalition of organizations the process of litigation in anything is long and tortured and and requires unbelievable amounts of research and work and these organizations are doing it but but you know in the meantime this is all happening it's becoming bigger and bigger and you're paying for it we
1: will link to the n- newest episode of the Animal Law podcast in the show notes. You can also, subs- you, you also will get it if you're an Our Hen House subscriber. So
0: stay tuned for that or tune in. I get it. You mean it'll show up in people's email.
2: Yeah, exactly. That doesn't exactly. necessarily
0: mean I will get something. Uh, I confess my email is... It's where information goes to die. He's just made me think of an old PETA campaign
1: that said, Petco, where the pets go, to die. And that must have been 15 years ago. Wow, and they it,
0: should revive that. It's every so good. Time,
1: every single time I see a Petco, I say it. Petco, where the pets go, to die. You just reminded me of that. It was such a good campaign slogan. Also, the errand that I was going on when I ran into the guy who was littering was to pick up my new glasses uh, at Lens Crafters, which is at the mall, and I went into the mall, and there was a goddamn puppy store, and I really? was, I was, sh- I'm still shocked. I'm still shocked. Like, and then I thought, like, where do the puppies? What if where do they sleep? Is someone with them? There was so many damn puppies. I didn't even know. Honestly, I didn't even know that was still legal here. But see, I live in a bubble. I digress. I totally digress.
0: Oh wait, what? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on.
1: What? What?
0: A bill was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. The, my understanding is it bans the sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits from pet stores in New York starting in 2024. I don't know when in 2020. Maybe, maybe it's not, not yet, but I would have thought it was January 1st. So what the hell's going on here?
1: So it's called Allies, A-L-L-I-E, apostrophe S. It's in Rochester. Or it's actually in Henrietta, which is a suburb outside of Rochester, the mall is. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, but I'm going to look into that. I'm horrified. I need to do something with my ire. Oh, you know what I could do with my ire? I love this, this resource todayforanimals.org. It's just incredible. It's available to anyone. And basically it's a way of tracking the type of advocacy that you're doing. So you could, you know, review a vegan dish or a product or discover one, or you could take a pledge to donate a percentage of your income to advocacy causes, like vegan advocacy causes. You could book a vegan experience and help sanctuaries. This is, the the things you could do are divided by difficulty. So the ones I just mentioned are easy, like a medium one would be spay or neuter a companion animal, or I assume you could also like sponsor one to be spayed or neutered. Uh, there are also hard ones like start a, we, the free street outreach team, and then you could include other ideas to help animals. And it's just
0: cool. And they give you instructions on how to do things too. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking I wouldn't like that, but maybe I would, you know, you get credits you like and credit. you can count them up and then you get points. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's good to be able to keep track of things.
1: You would like it can a lot. I,
0: can I, interrupt this for a second? Yeah. Cause while you were talking about it, I looked it up. And that law comes into effect in December of twenty twenty four. Oh God.
1: I feel like I should start calling this place and every month and be like, Hey, when does the law come into effect for you to stop selling puppies?
0: Feel free. Feel free. I wonder if the number of the store will be one eight hundred fuck you. Like the like the guy. probably Yeah, like the truck. So
1: <laughs> I also there has to be a point where they stop, you know, raping these girl dogs so that they have the puppies if they have to stop selling them. I could call them and say, when are you going to- Well, they have to
0: stop selling them in pet stores. It doesn't, you know, like don't fool yourself that they're going to stop like selling them at all. There's other ways to sell them. Wow. Wow. Really upsetting.
1: Anyway. All right. I thought I had gone over the upsetting things by talking about todayforanimals.org. So let's talk about something fun. You found this article from Veg and this is fun. Yeah,
0: well, just fine. I mean, I've actually in, done an interview about this topic, uh, Kartik Sekar. Oh, yeah, I think episode 669. 669, yeah. But it's still like when I read about it, it just, I don't know what they're talking about. This is about two Finnish companies, Solar Foods and Phaser. And the name of the article on VegConomist is Solar Foods and Phaser Unveil World's First Air Protein Chocolate Bar in Singapore. And so Spacer is making the chocolate and they're getting their protein from solar foods. The protein is called Solene. According to this, it's crafted through fermentation technology, utilizing microbes, carbon dioxide, and electricity without the need for agricultural resources. It's basically air protein. I still don't... I mean, even though I had this wonderful conversation with, with Kartik who explained all of this, it still boggles my mind. Apparently we can make food out of pretty much nothing. And it's about time we did.
1: It brings new meaning to like Eritarian, which sometimes people have called me. Like, if they're like, what do you eat? Are you like an Eritarian? And I'll be like, I could say, yes, I am. Now ask me where I get my protein.
0: <laughs> From, the air, From the air, apparently. Yeah. That- the, the name of the chocolate bar is called Taste the Future. I wonder, you know, I'm kind of sort of allergic to chocolate. I wonder if I could. Um, well, I think you should try. I could. Honestly, I think you should
1: try. Yeah, I I do think you should try. I'm not sure you're like allergic allergic. I I don't know.
0: No, it's not really an allergy. It's a, I just hate, you know, I hate to like do the, uh, oh, and this is my ailment. This is my ailment of the day thing, but I have a, it's a migraine trigger and I don't get regular migraines. I don't get headaches. I get dizzy, but chocolate is definitely a trigger.
1: Oh my God. Can I just tell you the most annoying thing before we get to our interview I was at a work event and it was like they were serving pizza and it's like a huge event, like hundreds of people. So I sit down at the table that they assigned me and there was a woman at the table who works in another department who's vegan. And she goes, I can attest that the vegan pizza they got is delicious. And I look and she was eating vegan pizza. And I'm like, they got vegan pizza? She's like, yeah, for the vegans. And I was, you know, so excited.
0: Now we have to get into your ailment,
1: Yeah, I have a chronic illness that we recently found a study that that linked a yeast-free diet to, like, alleviating the symptoms of it. And, like, very compelling stuff. Like, very, very compelling. Like, 100% success rate. And so I've been on a yeast-free diet for, like... So you're trying
0: it, yeah. I'm trying it. Who wouldn't? Oh, my God, you know where I'm going with... We've turned into those, those vegans. People. We we're are, so annoying. I never
1: bring it up. I didn't bring it up there. I only bring it up in front of vegans, like you guys listening. But I never talk about it outside of... Yeah, but you th- didn't th- eat
0: the pizza. I couldn't eat the guy that's They that got, got you pizza. vegan pizza and you didn't eat it. I, I can't eat the chocolate cake. Like, we're so annoying.
1: We're the most annoying people. Thankfully, we interview non-annoying people like Katie Cantrell and Alana Braverman. Why don't you tell us about
0: that? Yeah, we we need to move on to normal people. All right, Katie Cantrell. I'm not sure she's normal because she's like way above normal. Katie Cantrell is a social entrepreneur passionate about creating a healthy, sustainable, and just food system. As the founder of the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, Katie spent a decade leading food policy workshops at universities, government. Agencies and Fortune 500 corporations. She is now utilizing her expertise to implement plant based defaults in corporate food service. Alana Braverman's work focuses on the nexus of climate change and food. She gave a TEDx talk on the topic, moving beyond a hamburger default world. Prior to co-founding Greener by Default, Alana served as the director of outreach for Better Food Foundation and program manager at Farm Forward. They will be joining Jasmine right after this.
1: Social media is such an important part of the landscape today, even if you don't like it. But please do include Our henhouse in your digital horizons. You can like us and follow us on Instagram and TikTok and X and Facebook by searching for Our Hen House. Of course, you can always find us online at OurHenHouse.org where you can check out past episodes or support our efforts. And you're always welcome to email us at info at if you have any questions or if you want to share something you'd like us to discuss on the show. Thanks so much and see you online. Welcome to our henhouse, Alana and Katie. Thanks for having us. Very excited to chat with you. And Katie, I should say to you, welcome back to our henhouse, because as we were chatting about before, you've certainly been on throughout the years here and there. And for those who missed your interview a couple years ago or just want to catch up, let's start with you, Katie. Can you tell us about the concept behind the Greener by Default program, like the mission and the thinking behind your approach?
2: Sure. So we actually started as a program of the Better Food Foundation. They have an initiative called Default Veg. And so the core concept is really simple. It's basically flipping the norm. So instead of having meat as the default and people have to specially opt in to plant-based options, which usually only vegetarians and vegans think to do or bother to do, plant-based is the default and people have the choice to opt into meat and dairy. And so Greener by Default started as a program of the Better Food Foundation to work with corporations and other professional institutions and we have now spun off into an independent nonprofit.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So I'm curious, like Alana, your role and Katie, your
2: role and how you two work together. At Greener Brady Faults, we are both co-founders. We started this together and I am the CEO and Alana is the COO. So we work really perfectly together. <laughs> we have very complementary skill sets.
1: I have to say, because I would be remiss in not mentioning someone else who is making an appearance right now, I can hear your cat purring, and I'm here (laughs) for it. So like, who's the cat? Let's get the introductions out of the way. Who's the kitty?
2: Her name is Cuba, and she joins every one of my calls. (laughs) She's a very good worker. Fantastic.
1: So where, and where are you both located, by the way? I'm in Portland, Oregon. And I'm in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, cool. Uh, amazing. So, what are your target areas? Schools, companies, like tell tell me a little bit more about your target areas. So we have a couple of different target areas. One is
3: hospitals and healthcare. So after the big win with the New York City health and hospital system serving plant-based meals by default at all of their 11 public hospitals, which we were able to help them with, we have expanded that area. So we're working with hospitals all over the country to pilot a similar concept. And then we also work with universities, corporate dining environments, as well as large conferences and events to implement plant-based defaults.
1: That's a lot to cover and so exciting and refreshing and different. We wanna catch up on all the progress that has been made in the time since you started, but I particularly want to focus on what's going on in New York City, which has become a poster child for this movement in so many ways. Can you give us an overview of the progress that's been going on in New York City, since clearly if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere? (laughs)
2: Yeah. So we started working with New York City. We began with a pilot for patient lunches in their 11 public hospitals with a plant-based default. So they have two chef specials every day, and those used to be meat-based. And then for the pilot, they made them plant-based. And then if patients don't want either of the chef specials, they have other options to choose from, which include meat. The pilot was extremely successful. About 60% of eligible patients were choosing one of those plant-based meals. The people who chose them were happy with it. And it was so successful that they decided to permanently implement for lunches and dinners. And now they're working on expanding to breakfast as well. Now it's just a permanent program across all New York City health and hospitals. And they estimate that it's going to transition about 850,000 meals a year from meat-based to plant-based. And they're actually saving about half a million dollars in the process. And they've cut their
1: food-related carbon emissions by about a third
3: as well. Wow,
1: that's incredible. Tell me about the feedback that you're getting from the administrators and the people who you're working with on this.
2: It's all been very positive. There was an amazing amount of support at all levels from New York City Health and Hospitals. And they really were so amazing in crafting the program very thoughtfully. So their culinary director came up with recipes that were culturally appropriate. So he really drew from the different demographics of their patient populations and looking at what type of meals would be familiar and comforting to them since that's really what people are looking for when they're in the hospital. Their head dietitian was very supportive. We have a video with one of the CEOs of the hospitals who also really recognized how important this is for the community as a whole in terms of social justice and public health. They did these really wonderful roadshows where they did taste tests for all of the nurses and the food service staff. And so there was really a very concerted effort to bring everyone in as part of the program and really to get everyone excited about it and understand how beneficial and important it is. And I think largely in part, thanks to that, we've really seen only positive feedback. There hasn't been any pushback.
1: Amazing. I love that. So, Something that occurs to a lot of people who learn about this type of initiative, and certainly something I thought of immediately off the bat, particularly for patients whose illnesses are connected to diet. Is there any kind of education that accompanies the meals?
2: Yeah, so in New York City, they have a really incredible lifestyle medicine program. And so for patients who are hospitalized in acute care, they are getting cards with information about the food and it has recipes so that they can make those meals at home. And as well, they're really pushing for doctors and dietitians and again, everyone on staff to understand food as medicine. And then also for long-term care, they have these amazing lifestyle medicine clinics where Patients with diabetes and heart disease and these other chronic health problems get more long-term engagement and support to make dietary and lifestyle changes as part of their treatment plan.
1: So I know that it helps to have like a a vegan or, or more or less of a vegan mayor, which New York City does with Eric Adams. But aside from leadership from the top, which there isn't often, sadly, what are the things about a particular city or whatever that makes you think this is a good place to put your efforts? How are you determining where to focus?
2: So we're very opportunistic right now. We're focusing wherever there's interest and buy-in because we're a small team. So we have a pretty limited staff and we've really found that our time is best used on the actual implementation. So we don't want to spend a year battling with people who are ideologically opposed to this program when there are places where we can really spend all of our time just making it happen. And so one of the key steps to that is actually having internal allies. And this is an area where folks listening might be able to help out because we don't get anywhere with cold calling institutions of all types are really busy. They have a lot on their plates and you know, especially for hospitals coming out of the pandemic, for other types of institutions there's often been staffing shortages and food service. So they're usually not just doing this out of the goodness of their hearts saying, "Hey, let's add one more thing to our already crowded list. So it really takes someone on the inside to push this and say, you know what, we have all these carbon reduction goals. We have these DEI goals. We say that employee health or patient health is a priority for us. So this would be an excellent program to really walk the talk and show that we're prioritizing this. And so, especially for hospitals, we've been really fortunate to have a lot of doctors and nurses reach out to us, often who are part of the ACLM or the lifestyle medicine movement, who really believe in food as medicine. And they've heard about New York City. And they say, I really want to bring this to my hospital or to my healthcare organization. So that's usually how it starts. And then they work to set up a meeting with leadership, with decision makers. When we pitch the program, we share our case studies. And then once leadership sees the benefits, often it goes from there. And then we can speak with the dining directors and figure out all the logistics to actually make it happen.
1: So if someone's listening to this and they want to help, I know that we have a fair amount of nurses for, you know, I want to say for some reason, but anecdotally speaking, I think that the nurses that I know who are vegan see a very direct correlation and are just inherently empathic people. So it makes sense to me. But besides people in the medical field who would want to get involved, like what other institutions maybe would a listener be involved with that would make a good entry way for work with you. So
3: outside of healthcare, I would say if you work for any company, we could work with your corporate dining hall. If you work at a university or are involved with the university, we can also do a pilot there. And then if you have the control to organize an event, you can also, you know, switch the RSVP form or change the way that you're serving food, even for just one large event, which can really make a big impact.
1: So if someone contacted you, what would the next steps be? Like walk me a little through what the pilot program would entail?
2: It's different depending on the type of institution. So if we're doing a dining hall pilot, you know, in a hospital or university or a corporation, that's a more in-depth process. So it usually involves several rounds of meetings with different stakeholders. And then we always advocate for piloting these methods. It's usually too big of an ask for them to just blindly commit to it when it is a pretty big change. And so that can be pretty scary. And so we help them test it. And we look at different metrics that are important to them to really show that it works before they commit to doing it permanently. So we're looking at diner satisfaction, we're looking at carbon reduction, we're looking at cost savings, and so they can test it and say, hey, we achieved all these great results, people were happy with it, so then they feel safe going forward. So it's a somewhat lengthy discussion process usually to figure out who all needs to be involved, who are the decision makers who can greenlight the pilot, and then getting logistics figured out. It's easier for events and also for smaller companies that don't have a corporate dining facility, but they do have catered events or meetings, then we have one-pagers with different tips. So for instance, if food is served buffet style, there's certain really easy things that you can do, like making sure plant-based food is in the main buffet line. Oftentimes there'll be like a separate buffet just for the vegetarians, which it's funny because there's a different strategies if you're tailoring your recommendations to vegetarians and vegans versus if you're tailoring them to omnivores. And our focus is really on encouraging flexitarianism and making it easier and more appealing for omnivores to choose veg options. And so if you want omnivores to eat the food, it needs to be incorporated into the main line and not be at a separate station or a separate line. So like for buffets, we recommend serving plant-based in the main line, having the plant-based options first, having meat and dairy at the end with smaller serving containers, smaller serving utensils. And those types of nudges just naturally encourage people to fill up their plates with the plant-based options and the meat and dairy become more of an add-on on the side rather than the main focus. So we have different types of tips like that for different food service environments. And as Alana mentioned, you know, for events, if people are RSVPing, changing the language on the RSVP form to implement a plant-based default is a really easy and effective step that people can take.
1: Aside from that, what other specific messages play the best when you're doing this kind of a shift?
2: Messaging is actually one of the trickier areas. It's a very fine line. We've actually seen a lot of success just doing stealth implementations where you don't really message it at all. A lot of these strategies work based on human psychology and the way that we interact with the food service environment. And actually, a lot of choice architecture strategies are used by companies to maximize profits. So like on restaurant menus, one of the things is that people are more likely to choose the first item in a section. And so most of the time at restaurants, they will make that item the one with the largest profit margin. They're not telling you that that's why they're listing that one first. And so we're working to use those same approaches to encourage people to choose the healthier, more sustainable options. And those strategies just kind of work inherently. But if you tell people that you're doing that, then sometimes you get pushback from people who are opposed to plant-based for ideological reasons, or they have negative stereotypes about vegan food, or they think that their employer shouldn't be telling them how to eat. So it gets tricky. But the flip side of it is that if you do the the changes in a stealth way and don't tell people about it, and then they learn about it later, then you risk that they feel manipulated, they feel that there's been a lack of transparency. And so one of the things that we've been working on is really fine-tuning that to figure out how can we message this in a way that makes people feel included and encourages a sense of trust, but doesn't scare them away or feel like, oh my God, now there's suddenly all this vegan food and they're taking my meat away.
3: And some specific messages that we would promote if a client wants to go the messaging route are to emphasize the abundance and inclusivity of the meals. So saying we're providing a wider variety of foods to meet everyone's needs and really emphasizing that this is more inclusive for everybody, for your friends, for your colleagues who you're working with or to get down to the specifics of the actual people you're working with. So you could say X percent of your employees are trying to make this change to eat more plant-based foods. And so if you're able to get that level of data, you can also promote the fact and the dynamic norm that this is what everybody around you is trying to do. And that can also help bring people into making those better choices.
1: So what about party politics? Is this related to how you're choosing where you're going to focus? Is it mostly a blue state project or are you seeing successes everywhere?
2: I would say most of the interest we've had has been from blue states. Again, we're working opportunistically with institutions that have made carbon reduction commitments. Usually that's a big motivator for them to work with us where there are people internally who are allies who are often themselves vegetarian or vegan, although not always. Those two things tend to be more likely in blue states. But we are working with some institutions in more conservative parts of blue states or in some red states. And it's really important to us to build up case studies in a wide variety of locations and with different demographics, because these strategies do work everywhere. It can be more challenging in really meat and potatoes types of places, but there are ways that we can make this work anywhere. And so right now we're focusing our efforts on where it will have the most impact, which is places where it's readily received and we don't have to deal with pushback, but we are also looking to show that these strategies can be successful anywhere.
3: And I'll just add to that something really interesting is with the New York City pilot for hospitals, there are specific recipes that work really well there. And so we're trying to find out as we pilot this at different hospitals, are those the same recipes that do well? Or do we have to kind of adapt to different patient populations? And we're finding out that different meals do better in different places. So as we expand the variety of areas that we're able to test this in, we'll be able to give more specific recommendations based on the size of the city or where in the country different techniques or recipes will work better.
1: Do you know what recipes are working better in New York City? I'm just curious. Pizza? (laughs) Bagels?
2: I know that sancocho is one of their most popular dishes. And that's one that, again, the chef crafted. They have a large Puerto Rican population and other Latin American population. And so, again, those dishes that are really familiar to patients and, and comforting.
1: So, Katie, the last time you were here, this project was called Default Veg. Why the name change?
2: Default Veg is still a program of the Better Food Foundation, and I joined to bring Default Veg to corporate audiences. And I knew that the existing branding wasn't really a good fit for a corporate audience. It was more edgy, more towards millennials, Gen Zers, college students. And so I started by doing some market research and talking with corporate sustainability directors and corporate dining directors to see. Initially, I thought just I would change the colors and the images and things like that, but To a person, every single one of them said that the name Default Veg was too radical sounding. Just having veg in the name was too scary. I spoke with a former sustainability director for a major tech company. And he said, I wouldn't even open an email that came from Default Veg. And so I said, okay, clearly we need to change the name. And so we worked to find a name that was basically as innocuous sounding as possible. That's very neutral, very non-threatening very kind of greenwashy and corporate, but <laughs> that that works. It sounds reputable. It doesn't sound like some type of radical activisty type organization. And we work really hard to brand ourselves as very objective. We're very scientific. We're just helping operationalize these strategies that are rooted in behavioral science. That's how we settled on Greener by Default.
1: Well, I like it. It has a ring to it. Thanks. Even if it is like what you said, corporate sounding, I think that's kind of the point because you don't want people thinking that there's a bunch of like patchouli smelling hippie (laughs) vegans behind it, even if it's true, which I'm not saying because I can't smell you because we're (laughs) on a video call. But going back to messaging for a second, Alana, I have a question for you. You mentioned abundance and all of that. I know that so much of your messaging is health and particularly environmental. Are animal rights messages totally ineffective for this type of project?
3: I know you asked me, but (laughs) Katie, do you want to take that one?
2: Sure. I'm not sure that they're totally ineffective, but they are very polarizing. And that does tend to make it seem more political. You asked earlier about triggering the culture wars. And I think certainly animal rights just has this connotation of of being very controversial and divisive and something that even people who love animals or people who are maybe on the more liberal side, they just think like, oh, this is something that could be really controversial. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to risk my career or my reputation by being seen as pushing a radical agenda. We've had so much success focusing on sustainability and inclusivity and health that we've decided to really just focus on the messages that have the easiest path to success. Unfortunately, animals aren't part of that, but it does allow us to really have the biggest impact. And so we are saving animals through our work.
1: Totally. I am all for whatever works no matter what is motivating the person behind the curtain. You also promote inclusivity as a reason to adopt this program. In our increasingly multi-ethnic world, does this go a long way to allowing food service providers to feed everyone the same thing? Yeah, there are a couple of different points there. First, there are many religions that prohibit eating
3: certain animal products or eating certain animal products with others. And so it eliminates that issue. There's also 30 to 50 million Americans that are lactose intolerant. And so if we are not making dairy the default, we're getting rid of that issue. And then so many people choose to avoid animal products for a variety of ethical reasons or have allergies to certain animal products like eggs or shellfish or, as I said, dairy. and so by making the plant-based meal the default especially in catered settings it just eliminates a lot of issues actually for the food service providers that you know everyone can eat this plant-based dish, and so we don't have to provide all of these extra meals. In that sense, it definitely helps. When we're looking at an entire dining hall and we're saying, make it predominantly plant-based, it's also the fact that most of the diners can now eat all of those meals. Also, though, I want to say on the other side that one potential fallback from this is that someone will say, okay, we need to make sure the plant-based meal is you know, vegan and soy free and nut free and gluten free, (laughs) and then they'll just create this one meal. And so we also have a separate part of this strategy saying, make the plant-based meal the default, make it more inclusive for everybody. However, since you're going to be offering multiple plant-based options, make sure that some of them have gluten and some of them have soy and some of them have nuts so that they're really delicious and flavorful. And we're not saying that like it should be void of all
1: potential allergens. Oh my God. I'm so over people equating gluten-free with vegan. Like (laughs) when you go to a new restaurant or something and you ask if the session such as vegan and they say, oh no, but it's gluten-free. My (laughs) eyeballs hurt from the amount of times I have rolled them. I digress. Anyway. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And I know you mentioned before the type of support you provide. So is the type of support you provide like help with recipes and suppliers and messaging, is that tailored specifically to the specific place or do you have, so to speak, a default setting?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So depending on the client, if they're doing a pilot, we're always going to be there to manage the pilot, get the data, help them with messaging, things like that. And then if they say they'd like help with recipes, we have specific partners that will reach out to like Forward Food the Humane Society has a wonderful recipe database, specifically for hospitals, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has their universal meals program. And so we can point people in the right direction, or we can help them with working with a culinarian to create recipes. In terms of suppliers, if someone needs a specific product for what they're trying to serve, we can help them find that. But we've actually found that nine times out of 10, the places we're working with have all their suppliers set up, they know what type of food they want to be serving. So it's really just about finding the recipe that works for them. And then we can help them from there if there's anything else they need. That's
1: great. I have a question for you, Katie. So we recently saw a story about a university in the UK that voted to go all vegan in the cafeterias. And then they got a lot of pushback, apparently from people who hadn't bothered to vote. And the headlines were that they were forcing everyone to go vegan. Does this reinforce the idea that default programs are a better idea?
2: I mean, I think there's a little bit more leeway in Europe. They are a little bit farther along in terms of their openness to plant-based food. But certainly in the U.S., We see that there is much less pushback when you do a default rather than fully veg because people just don't like having choice taken away from them. They don't like being told what to do. So unfortunately, I've worked with a number of different universities and corporations that implemented Meatless Mondays and then had to cancel the program because there was so much pushback. People just don't like having choice taken away. And so that really is the beauty of defaults that Most people are flexitarian, so they're not going to go out of their way to request a veg option. But when it's delicious, when it's easy, when that's what the people around them are eating, they're happy to choose it. And so defaults encourage those people. But there is, I'd say, maybe about a third of people are the hardcore meat lovers, and they are going to bitterly complain if they don't have their meat. And, you know, there is also a very small percentage of people who are medically can't digest fiber or they're allergic to legumes and nuts and soy, you know, there are a small percentage of people who for medical or dietary reasons can't eat plant-based foods. And so defaults truly are the most inclusive for everyone because they meet everyone's needs. And so you don't get that pushback.
1: I have had this come up in various other scenarios when interviewing people. Like for example, I remember interviewing, I think Tabitha Brown about what she was preparing for her family and it was a situation where at one particular moment in time she was preparing dinner and she would make all of it vegan but it was kind of like take what you want there were people in her family if i'm remembering this correctly that would have non-vegan things that they would prepare on the side but everyone was kind of eating the same base or maybe maybe most of the time they were also eating everything the same so i'm just curious your thought, Alana, I see you nodding here. So is this something that has come up for you like on a personal basis or with people you know? Yeah, I love that approach. I would say that I don't have that scenario. Most times in
3: social events, it's mostly the opposite where the default is mostly animal based meals. And then I bring something separately. But I love that idea of especially if you're hosting, making everything predominantly plant based. And then if somebody wants to bring something else, that's seen as the addition or the side. And I was nodding because that's really how it's working with the conferences that we're working with. You know, It's great that the whole buffet line can be completely vegan. And then if somebody wants to add meat or dairy to their meal, depending on the conference setup, there's a separate station or they can ask a waiter to bring them a small portion of meat to add to their meal. But just that idea of normalizing that plant-based can be the main entree, the main buffet, what everybody can eat. And then if folks want to add something to that, that some people take and others don't, that's exactly what we're trying to promote in terms of a culture shift.
1: I love that. That's so great. And it's the beginning of a new year at the time we're recording this. So as a nonprofit, tell me a little bit of what you're able to about your sort of goals for moving forward, whether it's 2024 that we're talking about, or maybe some like pie in the sky dreams that you want for your organization.
2: We are really excited. Last year, we transitioned about a million meals from meat-based to plant-based, and we are looking to more than double that number this year. We're really focused on working with institutions, especially in healthcare. I think that's where we're really going to see very large shifts. Often, we'll start with a pilot at a single hospital, but we're working with several different healthcare organizations that operate 30, 40 different hospitals and long-term care facilities. We're also talking with a few more national companies, healthcare companies, insurers, things like that. We're really trying to make the biggest impact we can as quickly as we can. We know that the situation is very dire, both for animals and for the climate, and we don't have any time to waste. So we are customizing it as much as necessary, but also trying to scale very quickly.
1: Very cool.
2: And for those of our listeners who would like to get involved, how can they do so? they can visit our website. It's www.greenerbydefault.org. And we have an email sign up there. You can get in touch with us if you are part of a certain institution that you would like to bring this to. Very soon, we will also have a materials page available. So if you work for a company that maybe does catered meetings once a month for 20 people, or you're Part of a group that hosts events, you probably don't need to work with us intensively, but we will have materials available so that you can just take them and use them. If your event uses an RSVP form, we have the materials you need to make a plant based default for the RSVP, or if it's buffet style, or plated meals. Whatever the food service environment will have different strategies that people can take and run with.
3: Also, if you know of any place that is defaulting to plant-based meals, please let us know because we'd love to promote the work they're doing. And also, if you take our materials and implement
2: them successfully, we'd love to hear about it. If I could add one more thing to you. I want to encourage people to think bigger. So something that we see, it's kind of funny, sometimes I'll talk to a vegan who works for a big company and they'll say, oh, we don't need this. We already have a vegan option. You know, as vegans, we're so excited if we just have something to eat that isn't like a hummus wrap that we sometimes don't think that it could be better. But it's a paradigm shift both for omnivores and for vegans to realize that most foods could be vegan. Instead of us just having our one single option, we could have most of the food be plant-based and omnivores can eat and enjoy that food. And so it really is a paradigm shift to realize that we can push for more, and that can be done in a way that's inclusive and isn't gonna make people upset. Sometimes vegans are hesitant to bring this out. And we actually talk to a lot of people who are kind of almost like closeted at work with their veganism, like they're embarrassed to talk about it. They think it's too radical. So that's another benefit of the way that we present this is it's very professional. It's really focused on inclusivity and sustainability. And so hopefully that will be more comfortable for people to introduce without feeling like they're going to be seen as the radical vegan. It's the
1: cool thing to do. Yes, it is. I'm so inspired. I love that this is a way for people to get involved with changing the world for animals because so many people who come to our hen house are listening specifically for any tips on what they can do and what they can implement. And the fact that you have this like vegan machine behind what you're doing, but you can actually use people's resources, use people's connections is friggin' brilliant. I'm so excited about all of it. I have some personal probing questions for both of you, so I hope you'll stick on for just a moment for our bonus content. But I just want to thank both of you so much for joining us today on Our Hen House and for all that you're doing with Greener by Default. Thank you so much for having us. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore,
0: celebrate. Anxiety's arising. Our first story involves my favorite phrase from the industry meat plants. Maybe you don't know what a meat plant is. It sounds a little contradictory, but of course, I mean, they're using plant in the sense to mean like a factory. And when they talk about meat plants, they're talking about slaughterhouses. That's their word for slaughterhouses, as you probably know. And this is a, an article by Gregory Bloom on the Meeting Place site. He does the meat business column. And he wants to know why are meat plant tours important? Actually, he wants you to know why. Because as he points out, in my three decades of involvement in the meat industry, encompassing meat sales and various roles in six different USDA inspected meat plants, I've had the... <laughs> It always cracks me up. I've had the privilege of offering customers and prospects immersive plant tours into the inner workings of these facilities. And I read this and I was like, geez, they actually take people on tours of slaughterhouses and, and people are okay with it. This is troubling. And he points out four compelling reasons why meat plant tours should be integral to every meat plant's operation. One is dispelling misconceptions. He says that people think uh, up to the Sinclair's the jungle, and it's actually very different from that. He points out that, quote, a recurring comment from tour attendees is, quote, wow, that was not as bad as I had imagined, unquote. I don't know what to make of that. Like, how bad did they imagine it? I don't know. Revealing the art of food production is his second reason. This is one of my favorite shticks from from the industry. Urban dwellers in particular, he says, benefit from the opportunity to witness the process of food processing and gain firsthand insights into the journey from farm to table. You know, there's enough of an urban rural divide in this country or a perception of an urban rural divide to stop like enhancing this idea that everybody who lives in a rural area knows all about what it takes to get animals from living beings into your grocery store shelves. Like like slaughterhouses and factory farms are not open to the public. They're not open to the rural public. They're not open to the urban public. But, you know, from what he's saying here, they are open for tours. So th- that is also troubling you know, I think rural dwellers have every right to be as completely naive about what's happening to animals as urban dwellers. All right. The third point is fostering pride in culinary offerings. This is specifically for the chefs and restaurant owners, which I think, you know, he's talking, that's, that's the audience he's mostly talking about since he, I think he's in some kind of marketing. And it enables them to enhance the storytelling aspect of the dining experience. Because don't, don't you just love it when you go into a restaurant and, and, and the chef comes out and tells you all about his visit to the slaughterhouse and how great it was? Yeah, that's really happening. And the final one is building trust in the meat industry because, you know, there's so much misinformation, mistrust, sensationalized headlines. You know, we want to dispel all of that. All right, so, you know... As stupid as these reasons sound, I'm like, well, gosh, uh, he's actually doing tours of slaughterhouses? That's a little horrifying that people don't have problems. All right. So then he goes on to say, while acknowledging, he's acknowledging, while acknowledging the logistical challenges of offering physical tours. Yeah, it's like, it's hard to get to a slaughterhouse. They're in the middle of nowhere. So I understand that. All right. By offering physical tours to a global customer base or in smaller plants, there's a solution. Bring the meat plant tour to your customers, okay? So all of a sudden, we're not going on a tour anymore. What we're doing is watching PowerPoint presentations, videos, and photos. He points out he personally utilizes this format, finding it impactful for training entire restaurant staffs from front to back of the house. Well, I wonder what's you know, what the different impact is of going on a meat plant tour and watching a meat plant PowerPoint prepared by somebody from the meat industry. Uh, Yeah, not really the same thing, honey. Uh, Sorry. Uh, He also suggests incorporating lots of information. You know, he wants to be informative. You can tell people about the ethical raising of animals and the final processing stages. Wink, wink. And you can leverage resources from industry organizations such as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. (laughs) Oh, there's a source of reliable information for you. Or the pork checkoff. Yeah, for valuable insights and talking points. I bet that is very, very valuable. Uh, So yeah, nobody's going on tours of slaughterhouses. Or meat plants. All right, our second story is from our friends at Plant-Based News. And this is, from the UK, as many of their stories are, because that's where they're located. And Agricultural College shuts down Veganuary Initiative after pressure from farmers. I'm a little late with this story because, you know, it's February, but still. So there's a college, uh, it's Bishop Burton College. It's in Yorkshire. And according to this, it's, it's a further education college with a focus on courses related to farming. So it does have something of a farming bent. And so they announced that announced that it would trial two meat free days at an on site cafe. Doesn't say whether it's the only place people could eat, but but I'm not clear on that and meat-free Mondays and well-being Wednesdays. And this was to promote a healthy diet contributing to good mental health as well as sustainability. Farmers and meat industry representatives, very unsurprisingly in my in my point of view, quote, reacted angrily to the Post. A day later, the college's principal, Bill Meredith, apologized, apologized to the wider farming community for the impression the Post gave. Uh, what impression? Well-being. I guess that that could be that vegetables are good for you. Is that like so horrifying a thing to say that you have to apologize for saying that? According to this article, the students who had, or at least one of the students who had who had focused on this, also wanted to, you know, talk about climate change a little. And it wasn't anybody from inside the college, according to this article. It was outsiders who got involved to stop it. And there was a big backlash and, you know, that's what happened. Yeah, interesting, right? Like farmers don't grow plants anymore. I I know I point this out every week. I'm sorry. I know I'm boring. But seriously, farmers don't grow plants. (laughs) Like we get all of our food from farmers, except for, you know, some people who eat uh, dead fish and they're not really. Well, they know they're farmed now. I guess you could call those farmers. The fight goes on, though. There's this group, Animal Rising, and they've launched a new project, Vegans Support the Farmers. Well, yeah, why wouldn't we support the farmers? They grow food. We like food, too. And they want to create an allyship between vegans and farmers. I think that's a great, great project. And the aims of that initiative will be a fair price for farmers. A government boost for homegrown produce and to make farmers' voices heard in policy making. Well, let's hope it's the right farmers and not these, these bozos. All right. Finally, from Watt Agnet. Uh, this is a column by Meredith Dawson. Can a caged cage-free sign influence the egg consumer? Now, I don't shop for eggs a whole lot. You'll be surprised to learn. So, I don't know whether this is uh, this is a thing that you see frequently. But this happened in Michigan. And there was a group called Animal Justice pushing for caged and cage free signage in the grocery store, not only on the cartons but like signs on the shelves. so people would know the difference between caged and cage free eggs. Now, I know a lot of you are rolling your eyes right now because we all know that cage free eggs are hardly devoid of cruelty, but you know whenever the industry really doesn't want something, I think we should we should at least consider whether ah uh, whether it's worth getting. It can be deceptive to consumers to have the implication that cage-free means it's not cruel. But the industry is really, really upset about it. And uh, apparently Dollar Tree is running a whole study, a sales test to see if this kind of signage makes a difference. Apparently the first phase of the study went well, they're, so they're continuing it. The Michigan Attorney General, Dana Nessel, sent a letter to Kroger, the huge grocery chain, urging the company to add cage and cage-free signage to their stores. You know, good for them. That's really Im- impressive. And apparently, consumers are misled by, by labels such as Farm Fresh and Grade A. And they don't know what that means. And they tend to think it means that, you know, it's cage-free. And so they would just like some clear signs to let the consumers know what it is that they're buying. Kroger, you know, just said, We follow the law or something along those lines. And according to the writer of this article, you have to side with Croker on this because it's right. All eggs are properly labeled I love I love this paragraph listen just because the consumer does not know what a product label like grade a means doesn't mean Kroger is in the wrong I highly recommend that consumers do their own research on all the foods they consume not just eggs and decide what will best meet their needs god forbid we should tell them anything <laughs> let's just keep it a secret and and give these terms meanings that you know we know but the consumer doesn't know and then the consumer can Somehow figure out how to look it up, you know they have the internet and all, i am I'm am at the moment uh so cute, huh? Like, <laughs> let them find out for themselves. then the article points out, which is kind of interesting. I wonder why this is becoming such a to do there because as of january twenty twenty five the state's cage free housing law will go into effect it, it will include purchasing you know the eggs that can be purchased so. It will make cage-free eggs the only option for consumers to purchase. Interesting. So what's going on here? We'll have to keep an eye on this topic. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
1: That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be honored if you would join our flock friends community, starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. Visit our slash support to check out our tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can become part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include being part of a community with great alliteration. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. But some of the real perks include weekly bonus content and, get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me for a live recording of an Our Hen House podcast episode, followed by an opportunity to meet with the guests. And since Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts or leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also like us on Facebook where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter, and Instagram, and TikTok at Our headhouse. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. To Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to Veronica Kalinska who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. And special thanks to Jen Riley. We will be back next week with a brand new show so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much for your support, compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.